Well, good morning, everyone. The passage that today's sermon will focus on, as I mentioned earlier, is Mark 2, particularly verses 18 to 22. And you'll see that it begins with a statement about John's followers. That's John the Baptist and about some Pharisees. So verse 18, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. We're not told why, but there's this statement. They're fasting. And there's no mention here of this being the Day of Atonement, which was really the only fast that God had commanded. That's in Leviticus 23, if you want to look that up later. The only fast God commanded. It was only on that day when the high priest was able to enter the most holy place, when there were two goats brought together and one was going to be sacrificed and its blood poured out for the people and the other uh, hand was placed upon it. The sins were declared and it was sent off as a scapegoat outside the city. It was only on that day that the people were commanded to fast. However, I don't think this was that day. Jesus would have been very unlikely to have been feasting with the tax collectors. And it seems from uh, verses 13 to 17, that's what's going on. It's where uh, we had last seen Jesus. And surely the narrative here in Mark 2 would have been very different if this was the fast of the year, the Day of Atonement. Instead, it seems that the question is about general fasts, regular fasting, that John's followers and the Pharisees had been uh, taking part in. And the Israelites had actually made up a lot of them by this point. God commanded one, but... Uh, The Pharisees perhaps even had two a week. We know that in Jesus' story in Luke 18, it says the Pharisee fasted twice a week. He gets up and he boasts about it. Perhaps he was the original inventor of the 5-2 diet. But after this statement of fact here, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. That sets the scene. We then have a question. A why question. They come to Jesus, they say to him, why did the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And I believe that there are at least three different types of why question, both in life and in the Bible. There's perhaps more, but I could only think of three. There's a disobedient why. Don't know if you've heard this one before. I have, maybe even this morning. Can you put your clothes on? Can you brush your teeth? Why should I? Why? There's a disobedient why. In the Bible, we've got Jonah asks that sort of question. Then there's an accusatory why. You know, if you get, get found out, why is there uh, chocolate wrappers in the bin when we're on a diet? I don't know if you've heard that one. Accusatory, why? And most of the Pharisees' questions when they came to Jesus seemed to be along that lines. Accusing him, tricking him, testing him. And then there's a third why, an inquisitive why. I mean, why do birds fly south for the winter? It's interesting. Why don't you fast like us? Perhaps this question was more along those lines. Inquisitive. 
We know the Pharisees got very good at accusatory, pointing the finger with their whys. But this is very early in Jesus' ministry, and it's quite possible that at this point, they weren't really looking to trap him. It's maybe too early. Maybe they weren't trying to accuse him. It possibly was just a good question. But if we read between the lines, we can get a little bit of a hint at what they were really asking. And especially when we look at Jesus' answers to the question, he kind of gives two. And it tells us a little bit of what they were really asking in their hearts. See, I think John's disciples are really asking, can you explain what's the logic behind your decision to fast? Can you explain it to us? What's the logic? Is there a good reason? Can you help us understand? Whereas the Pharisees, I think, are asking, do you do religion like we do religion? Or don't you like our religious rituals? It's possibly inquisitive, but slightly sceptical. At this point, they haven't reached full accusatory, a bit sceptical. So why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but Jesus' disciples do not fast? And as I mentioned, I think there's two different motives, because I see two different types of answer from Jesus in the coming verses. To John the Baptist's friends, Jesus says, really, they don't fast because it's not relevant. To the Pharisees, the answer is more like, no, I don't do religion like you do. My way is not like yours. So firstly, let's look at not relevant. Why don't they fast? Well, it's not relevant. Now, the Pharisees had come to love a fast because it showed how holy they were. They could be very pious and clearly set themselves apart from the rest of the crowd when they were fasting. Isn't that holy? And as I mentioned before, there is some evidence that a number of them were fasting at least twice a week at this point. But why did they fast? Where did it begin? What was it really about? See, originally Israel had called a fast when the people felt far from God. When they wanted his blessing, they needed his help, they needed his presence. That's why they called a fast. Sometimes they wanted his mercy, and so they were full of sorrow and remorse. They felt like they hadn't got his presence because they'd been sinful. Other times, uh, they wanted his power. They wanted his presence because they wanted him to answer their prayers. Maybe in times where they needed rescue. Either way, they fasted when they needed God's blessing. Either they weren't experiencing the blessing because they were far from him. Or they weren't confident that they had his blessing for what they were about to do for what they were actually asking for fasting was a way of humbling themselves and declaring that God's presence his blessing was more important than anything else even food now some commentators speculate that John's disciples might have been fasting at this point because John had been arrested and imprisoned Shortly, uh, sort of around this period that, that John is arrested. Is that why they're fasting? They wanted God to answer their prayers to release John. But I don't think that's why the Pharisees were fasting. They seem to be fasting twice a week to show off. Not to humble themselves, but to boast how much they did for God. 
Look at us, we fast every week. Aren't you impressed with us? Aren't we just so righteous? This is what Jesus said in Luke 18. In Luke 18, verse 9 to 12, I'm going to read. You can skip to it if you want. It's on page 1052 in the Bible. But Jesus said, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. He said, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. This is how the Pharisees fasted. To show off to God, to show off to others. So Jesus answers the Pharisees and John's disciples separately. To John's disciples he says, Well, how can the wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is still at the party? This is verse 19. Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? They cannot. It's not the right time. If fasting's true purpose is about being without God's presence and wanting it, then it's totally irrelevant to, uh, to fast when God is with them. Here, God is literally in their presence. Jesus is with them. We know that Jesus' other name is Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus here refers to himself as the bridegroom, his answer. It's a phrase that John had actually used to describe Jesus. This is in John 3. In John 3, verse 28 to 30, John says, You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm sent ahead of him. The bride, the church, God's people, belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom, he waits and he listens for him. And he's full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it's now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. John saw that Jesus was the bridegroom, his people were the bride, and John was just a happy wedding guest. One sent ahead, a friend of the bridegroom, sent ahead to prepare for the wedding feast, but Jesus was the bridegroom. And it's a common picture throughout the Bible. God is the groom, the people, his church, are the bride. He is committed to and in love with his bride. He's a loving groom. So Jesus, to the disciples of John, says, No, my disciples don't fast. My bride doesn't fast. It's not relevant. I'm here. I'm with them. And to the Pharisees, who perhaps asked with a more sceptical tone, he answers in verses 21 to 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth or on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled, the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new or fresh wineskins. So what do these funny domestic parables about tailoring, sewing patches, And wine production 
What do they teach us? How do they answer this question? Why don't you guys fast? Well, the point is the same in both the parables, as is often the case when Jesus pairs them together. He wants them to know that there's something old. It's two examples of something old. The Pharisee's something old is broken. And he's come to be something new. In the first parable, there's a garment. It's been used, it's been washed, it's been used, it's been washed, it's been loved. And perhaps it still has some uses, but it's broken. There's at least one hole in it. As much as you might love an old, worn, faded jumper, if it's got a massive hole in it, it either needs fixing or replacing. Jesus said the garment is old and it's got a hole in it. And trying to patch it really won't help. It would actually make it worse. The wineskin example is the same. An old wineskin, when it was new, you pour in the wine, which at this point really is grape juice, and it ferments inside the wineskin. It stretches and expands. It's fermenting in there. There's chemical process going on. So the wineskin grows and changes as the wine matures. Once the wine's drunk, that skin is no longer suitable for wine. If you try to use it again, it won't last the new fermenting process. It's got old, it's got stretched, sometimes it goes brittle. If you've left it mature a while, the wine skin will burst if you try the process again, and the wine will be lost. Both parables point to, your something old is broken, this is something new. See, the Pharisees had taken God's law and they had stretched it, they'd reshaped it, and it had many holes in it. It didn't matter how much they loved that old garment, how many memories they had with it, how great the fermented and matured wine of the law had tasted to them. It was broken, it was old, it was no longer fit for purpose. Jesus had come to bring something new. A new garment, a new wineskin. So to the Pharisees' question of, do you do religion like we do? Do you like our our righteous rituals? His answer is, no, I am new. The old was broken, I am new. The Pharisees had come to rely on their fasts, their sacrifices, their traditions, their religious forms. It made them feel comfortable, made them sort of in control of their own destiny, they thought. They thought if we just keep enough fasts, if we make enough sacrifices, if we say the right words at the right time, on the right days, God will have to be pleased with us. And they, like the vast majority of all righteous people... And all religious people, is what I really mean here. They'd found things they thought could help keep an angry God happy. They thought if we just do enough of these good works, we'll be okay. And it's a trap that people of all generations have fallen into. It's one of the devil's favourite lies, I think, to tell people. Do some religion. Do some of this, do some of that, it'll be okay. 
Even today, people are working hard to please God. Some people think, if I do enough good things, it will outweigh my bad, and God will accept me. They give to charity, they help their neighbours, they're kind, they feel like their, their religion will save them. Others don't really think their good can outweigh their bad, so instead they go on pilgrimages, they say prayers at the right times, they dress a certain way, they light the right candles, they ding the right bells. There might even be people here listening to this sermon who go to enough church services, who read the Bible just enough, give 10% of what they earn, listen to some worship songs during the week, they've ticked the right boxes it makes them feel like they're doing enough and they are so so wrong the religious acts they are performing are just a dirty old jumper that is no longer fit for purpose god isn't impressed god isn't pleased it doesn't buy god's favor god does not care about their religious acts There is no ritual or song or ceremony that can buy you God's favour. If God blesses you, that is grace. Only grace. Totally grace. It's his undeserved gift. You cannot earn God's love. And Paul was one of the biggest uh, teachers of this theology. This truth. In all of his letters, he touches on it. Because it's something he knew personally. So in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, he said, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So if in your mind you have any train of thought that says, I'll probably be okay. Because I'm good, I do enough, I'm here this morning. But I'm afraid you're very much mistaken. I suggest you take some time to read Paul's letter to the Romans. Or if that's a bit heavy for you and a bit long, maybe Paul's letter to the Philippians. Because this was one of Paul's main themes. He was a man who thought he was saved by works. That's where he started. But God opened his eyes to the new way through Jesus. He writes in Philippians 3, verse 4. If someone else thinks they've got reasons to put confidence in the flesh, reasons to put confidence in what they do, maybe, well, I've got more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I was persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, on my fasting, on my lighting the right candles, I was faultless. But he goes on to say, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I considered them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from following the law, from doing these fasts, 
but the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul knew that the old law was unable to save anyone. He knew it. He wrote words like, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. He also wrote, what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his son. And back in Mark 2, we've sort of skipped verse 20. But it gives us the biggest hint of what Jesus really came to do. Observing the old law was not working for anyone, but a day was coming when the bridegroom would be taken from his bride. That's what verse 20 says. Sometimes translated, the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away and then they will fast in those days. Or it might be the day. They will fast in that day. But it's clear that the bridegroom was going to be taken away. The day was coming. Jesus is the bridegroom, the church is his bride. And the days that were coming we now call Easter. Jesus died on the cross on Good Friday and he was taken from his followers. He was no longer present with them. That was a reason to fast. God was no longer with them. But the reason Jesus died was so that he could take the punishment that everyone deserves and so that he could make a way for us to be in his presence forever. For us to be eternally with the bridegroom. In a marriage that really does mean happily ever after. Because all people are sinners. They're like old wineskins that are tough and stretched God's presence was always going to break that wineskin. So Jesus had to die so that we could be given new life and know God's love forever. Fasting was about God not being with you, wanting his presence. Well, Jesus died, he was taken away for those few days so that forever his presence was with his people. So the application for any non-Christians here this morning, any people who haven't committed their lives to Jesus, any people who've been ticking the right fasting boxes and coming to church boxes, but are relying on old religion, the application for you is don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus taught some rules to get us to heaven. The rule system was old and it was broken. Jesus came to die for us, came to be taken away from us for a short period so that we could then be made new. He was given new life so that we could be given new life and have his presence and his blessing forever. And all we need to do is turn away from our old way, turn away from the fasting and the religion and ticking the boxes. And believe that Jesus died for us and he is the new and only way to know God forever. When I read from Luke 18 a little earlier, I stopped halfway through that section. Let me read it again. Luke 18 verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. 
Are you confident of your own righteousness here this morning? Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus then says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, the sinner, this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves before a good God will be exalted. The application for Christians, well, I think it's two quick questions I want to ask them this morning to help apply this passage. Question you could ask is, should followers of Jesus fast then? Does this say no? No fasting at all. Well, Jesus said that fasting isn't really relevant for Jesus' people. If Jesus is with you and you know his blessings, then there is no need to fast. As I said before, the purpose of fasting was to humbly request God's mercy and or his power, his blessing and his presence. But we know that anyone who is a penitent, born again follower of Jesus, well, he is already with you. He is always with you. He is always blessing you. So Ephesians 3 verse 17 says, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Colossians 1 verse 27 says, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Galatians 2 verse 20, Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So in one way, fasting is not that relevant for followers of Jesus. However, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount did say, when you fast, implying that he's not banning fasting, that there might be occasions when they do fast. Jesus certainly thought it might continue, but he didn't command that it continues. So when might it continue? Well, there might be a period in your life where you actually do feel distant from Jesus. You might have gone through a period where your sin has blinded you to the reality of God's spirit with you. You may even today be feeling that God has removed his presence from you. And in that situation, it might be relevant for you to fast. To come before God humbly and say, I need you more than I need food. However, I'd I'd suggest that you make sure... That one, it would be healthy for you to do so. If you're pregnant, if you're on medication, if you're poorly, if you're struggling with diet and nutrition, then perhaps don't fast. But also, more importantly, make sure your motive is to have God's presence and favour. And your motive is not, like the Pharisees, for God to be your debtor. Let me uh, try and explain with an example from my parenting. Well, actually from my child. 
Sometimes Noah comes to me and he says, Daddy, what do I have to do to help so that I can play on the Wii? He might load the dishwasher. But he loads the dishwasher because there's a reward of playing on the Wii. Don't do that. Don't fall into the trap the Pharisees had. And very, very rarely, if you know my son Noah, he does something slightly different. It ends up with loading the dishwasher, but it's slightly different. He comes with a different motive. He says, Dad, if I help you tidy up, will you have time for me? If I help you tidy up, can we spend time together? See, Noah's motive there is me, not the we. It's not what I'll owe him. It's not what I have to pay him once he's done a job. He just wants to spend time with me. That should be your attitude. Not, God, I'm doing fasting, so you better heal my leg. Or you better give me the answer I want to my prayer. Or that better job I want. Rather, your attitude should be, God, I'm fasting because I want you. I want to know your presence. I want to know your will. So yeah, application one. Should we fast? Well, there's some situations when we might fast. But it's not commanded. And it's only with the right motive. Question two, let me ask you this. Have you got any old garments of religion that you are giving too high a place in your life? Have you got any old jumpers that you've been carrying with you that are old religion? See, the Pharisees are taking God's law and added to it. And perhaps with right motives to begin, perhaps to help at first. See, it is a good idea for us to regularly make sure we're enjoying the presence of God. So their idea of fasting regularly, maybe it was a good idea. They were checking that God was more important than food to them by doing it regularly. But something that those wise leaders described and said might be a good idea had become something that was prescribed. It was a wise bit of thought or advice and it became a command. And we see this in the church. You could probably, uh, if you look at the Catholic Church or the higher end of the Church of England, see it. There's a lot of liturgy and forms and traditions. And possibly they were a good idea to start with. Some of the great uh, prayers that are written in the um, sort of Church of England prayer books were written because people were struggling to pray, to find the right words. That's good. Let's help them find the right words. But now they are said as a religious rite. Let's just say these words and it ticks the box. And we're not immune to this. Churches that we're friends with, churches that we love, maybe even this church can fall into this trap. Might be smaller areas that we've advised something helpfully, but it's become a bit of a command in our life. So there's some churches who say the King James Version is a very good translation. We should use it. But how quickly that becomes. The King James Version is the only version and everyone else who uses anything else is evil. 
There's many churches who've decided that two services on a Sunday is a good idea. Let's have one at 10.30 and one at 6. That's what good churches do. But how quickly does that become, that's what good churches do. 10.30 and 6, two services. I won't go to a church that doesn't have two services. And maybe for us, it's something a little smaller. Maybe someone suggested to you that you listen to a sermon by, and you can insert a name here, John Piper, um, MacArthur, Chan, Carson, anyone. Listen to a sermon by him. It's a good idea. But maybe now you've got to the point where you're worshipping that preacher. And you have to listen to two of his sermons a week. And if, in fact, he hasn't taught something, you don't believe it until he said it. It happens. Or someone gives you a bit of teaching from the Bible. Like, for example, they talk to you about men and women and and, and the complementary roles that they have. It's good teaching. Starts off well. And you believe it. You say, yes, men and women have different roles. But you take it further and further than God's word says. And you say, well, this means that women must stay at home and raise children. And they must work and earn the money. And you're forgetting that this was a description of something wise that you're now prescribing. It's all just random illustrations I thought of. Don't want to get at anyone. I'm really not aiming this at anyone. But it, is there things in our life that we are giving too high a place? Is it really just a religious form? We're told here. To forget the works, forget the fasting, and enjoy the bridegroom. And when Jesus is with us, there's no need for any of the religion. There's no need for the extras. It's just us and him. We cannot fast when he's with us. He is our groom, we are his bride, and we should rejoice in knowing him. The law, in the Old Testament, Jesus came to fulfil it. Doesn't mean it's not a good thing. Doesn't mean it's not something we should uh, read about and learn from. But Jesus came so that we have relationship with him. Not with a religion, not with the law.